and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in. Coming back to the show, first-time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Very happy to have you. Hope you've had a chance to check out Counterpunch Plus. That's the brand new subscriber section on the website. It's replaced the print magazine because, of course, the times are tough. It is 2020. Print is now a bygone era, and we have moved on. But all of the content that you found in that magazine is still available. It's on Counterpunch Plus on the website. Get a subscription. You'll get all of the columns, all of Jeff Sinclair's old stuff, all of Alex Coburn's old stuff, going back to the earliest days of Counterpunch, all of the stuff in the archives, plus, of course, all of the new content, including uh, book reviews, cultural criticism, uh, investigative journalistic pieces, a whole bunch more. Do go to Counterpunch Plus. Support Counterpunch in that way. It's greatly appreciated. Counterpunch Radio t-shirts are, of course, available as well. we got a brand new, beautiful-looking logo. I would recommend you go check that out. I think the t-shirts are available, or they will be very soon. And finally, of course, for myself, you can check out my other work on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Eric Dreitzer. A lot of videos and other content, international affairs, global political issues, and so forth. Anyway, uh, let me turn to my guest today. Very happy to speak with him, somebody I respect immensely. His work is of paramount importance. It is Joe Lowndes. Joe is a professor of political science at the University of Oregon. He is also the co-author of the really critically important book, Producers, Parasites, and Patriots, Race and the New Right-Wing Politics of Precarity. That was from 2019, co-authored with Daniel Martinez-Hosang. You can go to Joe's website, joelounds.org, to find all of his work. Get a copy of his book. It is the holiday season, a great gift to give. Joe, welcome to Counterpunch. Hi, Eric. Thanks for having me. Thanks for that plug. Of course, absolutely. Thanks for all of the great work. And let's really dive into some of these critical issues that you and I were kind of talking about before we started recording here. But really, we've sort of been talking about on the left for several years now. And here we are at the very end of 2020. Uh, Trump is on his way out and Biden is on his way in. And I guess I just want to kind of start with your analysis of this moment that we're living through how would you describe this particular period, this sort of interregnum, and what do you think a Biden administration represents? Well, you know, I think uh, uh, Gramsci may have put it best by calling these kinds of interregnums a, a time of monsters, you know, that, that the, uh, the, the new is not yet born. Uh, and we're, you know, maybe in some, either in a transition or an impasse, uh, but it is a strange moment, and it's one that's hard to, I think, um, get our arms around yet. Uh, although I think that you know there are a lot of clues to uh, what's happened and what might happen. Obviously, in the election itself, uh, ruling interests were divided, but in the main, they leaned towards the you know the restorationist vision of the Obama years. Um, most. Corporate interest, you know, went in for went in for Biden, and uh, he, you know, claimed a lot of that money. Uh, the, you know, Trump was able to um, get, you know, oil and big gas and other extractive industry money. But I think, you know, for the, for the most part, the the ruling elite was is com- comfortable with a um, with a Biden presidency. And so I think, you know, part of that what that means is um, the electoral coalition that brought him. Well, will bring them to power was you know a range from centrist to progressives. Uh, although I think for a lot of reasons, uh, progressives are likely to be, at least in the short run, uh, kind of sidelined uh, in terms of um, domestic policy, in terms of 
questions of foreign policy, empire, this emergent Cold War with China, um, questions of environmentalism. And, you know, there's already been some, you know, some fights over uh, his cabinet picks. Uh, but, you know, I, I, conditions are very unstable on the ground and there's a lot of things uh, in play. And um, so it's, it's really hard to see what, um, what kinds of opportunities and openings there are on the left, as well as what kinds of things are going to be shut down, uh, at least through the Democratic Party and through this presidency. And why do you think the ruling class was so divided on Trump and Biden and why so much of the ruling class really sided with Biden? Is this uh, this sort of restoration, as you called it, simply a matter of protecting their bottom lines? Is this about getting some stability or is there something more? Well, you know, I think elites in the party lined up for Biden uh, against Sanders. And, and once the party became a safe bet for capital, I think they were on board. You know, in, in some ways, uh, Trump delivered for wealthy interests. Obviously, the uh, that the extraordinarily radical tax bill that that lifted wealth, you know, uh, upwards in ways that was already quite extreme. Uh, you know, was something that um, really was a was a gift to um, the you know not just the one percent, but the point oh one percent. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot that Trump um, was able to do with this, you know, with Republicans in Congress. But at the same time, he was, you know, he's he's unpredictable. He introduced a lot of instability into the system. Uh, there's, the, you know, both in terms of um, foreign policy and in terms of domestic policy. And, you know, he wasn't he clearly was um, not a great steward of of kind of the empire, not a great steward of of um, predictable interests. And so, I, you know, I think that for those reasons, he made a lot of people uncomfortable and they were happy to, I think Republicans were happy to see him go down. You know, they, they could, the Republicans in the Senate could have passed a, uh, you know, a relief bill before the election that would have uh, helped him enormously, but they were happy to hold off on that. And so I think, you know, even, even within his, at least among elites in his own party, they, you know, were not pleased to have him there. So would it be fair to say or to think of it as uh, one segment of the ruling class, as you mentioned, uh, oil interests like petrochemical, uh, real estate, things like that is sort of uh, or pr- primarily big oil as sort of the last gasp of that sec- segment of the ruling establishment? Because we've been talking about on this show actually for a few weeks now about this sort of transformation in the ruling class and sort of this intra-ruling class conflict that you see between uh, sectors like big tech versus big oil and this sort of competition for what we might call the new uh, locus of power in the 21st century. How do you read these uh, splits? Yeah, I mean, I think they are, as you described them, you know, um, the extraction industries, natural gas, uh, oil, other things are... um, you know, kind of go along with a a kind of a Trumpian vision more broadly, whereas the tech sector, um, you know, the kind of managerial elite professionals all have something to gain from, um, you know, from democratic administrations. I think that, you know, at the the very top, both parties are uh, tied into, um, you know, finance, insurance and real estate. But then, you know, down at the next level, you have kind of um, kind of splits. But, you know, I think part of it is it's there is, I think, sometimes um, a little bit of a um, 
maybe you know an urge among Marxists anyway, or people who see these things very structurally, to look at um, you know merely what's happening at that level of the um, elites. And I think that you have to kind of uh, continually you know both look at you know both economic interests at the top, but institutional power and institutional uh, openness that happens in you know both in the party system in Congress in state legislatures elsewhere, uh, and then also the electorate itself. And so, you know, among Republicans, you have um, a really transformed party, even within the last four years. So, you know, you have one. So in other words, you could say that in some ways, I think the ruling interests in the Republican Party are tied at some level to um, its base, They're tied to, you know, uh, a, a vision of, um, redistribution anchored in um, nationality, in race, in closed borders, and you know, kind of what this this kind of white working class, you know, populism to use the the term that journalists, liberal journalists, like to use. But you know, the, on the other side, Democrats are um, appealing to teachers, healthcare workers, social workers, you know, kind of uh, people with well, actually with, with advanced degrees more generally, even if it's just, um, you know, uh, kind of degrees that, that um, put you in the economy in a way that uh, you benefit, stand to benefit from redistributive um, schemes of the Democratic Party. So I think, you know, part of it is you have to look at where the, you know, where um, party identities line up. And one of the things about this election was that really the, the class component of it came out more sharply. So um, Biden did obviously uh, uh, better in the wealthy suburbs and exurbs that had gone for Trump in 2016. Um, Trump, on the other hand, did better with whites without post-high school degrees. And to that, he added a number of working class votes from various Latinx communities, not just among anti-communists in South Florida, but Puerto Ricans in Osceola County outside Orlando, uh, Chicanos along uh, the Rio Grande Valley, you know, in Texas, poorest communities, also extractivist communities, uh, and and uh, other communities. So there's there's kind of a, at some level, a kind of a class cleavage, uh, um, which is which is defined um, defined the electorate in certain ways. So the other thing I would say about then is, for the Republicans, there's kind of, you know, there's kind of three things going on. There's Trump. And then there's the Republican Party establishment, and then there's Republican voters. And so I think there's each has their own set of interests or identities going on. Uh, you know, I think for um, we can talk about what's happening right now or what has happened in the last couple of weeks in terms of this the, the way in which these three different entities have have interacted. I'd like to ask you how you read these waning days of the Trump administration and specifically, not necessarily Trump only himself, although maybe as an individual, but I also think the administration generally, what does it hope to achieve at an institutional level, at a structural level, and then maybe also at an even sort of personality level? What is it that Trump is doing here while there's, you know, these shiny objects in the news that are garnering our attention, like uh, the Electoral College and other nonsense? Mm -hmm. You know, it's at some basic level for uh, for Trump and the people closest around him, it's a it's just a fundraising machine. You know, I get probably 10 of these things a day from 
um, various elements of the Trump campaign or from Don Jr. or other, you know, kind of uh, email sites set up to, um, you know, hoover the cash out of the pockets of of Trump supporters. And, you know, these, these, you know, mailings keep saying we're about to win Georgia. We have, you know, we have ongoing lawsuits. This whole thing's about to be overturned and you get this over and over and over. And there, you know, these are each one of these is an appeal for money an appeal for more cash, just another $15, just another $25 from you. You know, you can help us do this. And of course, I think that, you know, they know they're not going to, they have known all along, they're not likely to have won this, but this builds up Trump's uh, political action committee and associated political action committees. And it does two things in that way. One, it, it um, well, one, it actually pays high salaries to the people connected with the campaign. But it also um, sets up Trump with a very large war chest. So when he's back in Mar-a-Lago, he can, you know, um, begin to think about whether or not he's going to run or whether one of his children is going to run or someone else close to him is going to run four years from now or begin running, you know, very soon for or four years down the road. Um, and also, you know, it allows him to maintain, because of that, real sway over the party machinery itself, control over the Republican Party, over the RNC. So I think that's, you know, that's what Trump is up to. And I think that's what, you know, all this in some ways has been uh, about. I think for, you know, other party elites um, in the Senate and the House, uh, it, you know, it has been kind of, I think they, on the one hand, benefit from these questions about the Electoral College, because in some ways it 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 constrains the, the Democratic Party, it constrains Biden, it casts his, uh, his election, um, you know, in a dim light as maybe something that voters think was not legitimate. And, and obviously, you know, anywhere between 70 and 90 percent of Republican voters think it was not legitimate. And that, you know, that that uh, constrains presidential power in real ways. So they benefit from that. But the other thing is they are um, quite fearful of uh, Republican voters who are deeply um, tied to tied to Trump. So I think, you know, that's they've been kind of biding their time and either siding, you know, uh, with Trump on calling for, you know, um, every every scheme under the sun to overturn this election, or kind of keeping quiet about it, hoping that it's going to go away. I mean, there, there, there are pieces in the Times, the New York Times and the Washington Post today, both of which were kind of um, marking sharply this idea that uh, McConnell is now finally splitting with Trump because he is he is admitting that this is this electoral college victory means that um, that Biden's going to be the new president. And I'm you know and this has been there should be nothing that surprises us about this. This has been what what else is McConnell going to do and what else was he going to do all along? And the idea that this somehow becomes a new side of internecine warfare between Republicans on this seems um, you know kind of silly for any of us who have been been watching this all along. But then there's the question of the voters themselves. And, you know, in that way, the party itself has become a far right authoritarian entity. And, you know, we can talk more about that. But, you know, voters, as, as we've all seen, you know, have gone down this, uh, this road toward, um, you know, kind of like the John Birch Society writ large, this radical conspiracy theorizing, uh, greater propensity to violence, uh, greater kind of zeal for authoritarianism, and you know that's that marks the uh, the party system generally and you know, American political culture generally. I think. 
I want to return to that issue in just a moment, but I want to follow up on this question of Trump and the administration in these last days, because it does also seem that under the radar, Trump and his people are delivering for a lot for for key constituents, key donors, key uh, actors that have been sort of behind the scenes supporting Trump. Uh, as we mentioned already, the uh, the, the various uh, petrochemical and extractivist industries, of course, opening up wildlife you know wildlife refuges and uh, the assault on the national parks and the assault on the EPA and all of these things. These it seems like with Trump now officially on his way out that uh, perhaps even what little constraints there were might be gone. And I worry that there's a lot of these things that are going to fly under the radar as everyone seems drunk on the idea of a post-Trump world. Yeah, I, I think that's a really great point, Eric. And, you know, they're kind of they're wrecking the place on the way out. And, you know, they are you know moving to deregulate as much as possible. And as you said, open up areas for drilling and, um, you know, pull back any kind of stops or constraints on, um, you know, on what their supporting industries can do. And that's going to be something that... I'm sorry, Joe, I just wanted to note the point being that Biden has no intention of reversing any of it. And so Trump's damages that he's doing, it's like permanent damage. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I think that's right. One, you know, uh, you know, for a couple of reasons, one... You know, Biden may not have much interest, or the people around Biden may not have much interest in, in um, you know, overturning that stuff. Uh, and even, you know, even to the degree that there will be uh, pressure on Biden to, you know, pass, you know, he's promised to pass this raft of executive orders that's going to overturn all this stuff and, and make all these changes. He's already speaking in such an accommodationist language in the last couple of days, even. That, um, you know, the more Trump does at this point, the less Biden will be able to turn around because uh, he, um, you know, seems frankly, you know, fearful and uh, tenuous, even the things that he, which might be part of his presidential imperatives generally, the idea of, um, of angering either, you know, economic elites or the Republican Party base by overturning these things, I think is, you know, something that um, I think you're right. I mean, some of it will, some of it, you know, there, uh, it depends on the organizational power of labor, of environmental organizations, of immigrant rights organizations, and what they're willing to do and how much they're willing to push back. This is not, there's no, there's not a fait accompli here. Part of it with all presidents, you know, with all presidents is that, um, you know, they're subject to uh, organized uh, pressure. And, you know, there's the, one of the risks right now is that everybody seems so, um, like you said, drunk on this idea that we're in a post-Trump era or feeling like no one wants to criticize Biden because uh, it seems like it's so tenuous that he got in there. Everybody seems, you know, still so you know shaken by Stockholm syndrome that they're unwilling to really, you know, push back. So it's going to have to be, um, people are going to have to really lay it on. Progressives are going to have to really uh, push hard from the get-go and be um, as you know as obstinate and as aggressive and as critical of the Biden administration as as possible. I think.
Well, I of course agree with that, but I hate to uh, be the wet blanket, the rain on the proverbial parade here. But I think we all understand that Biden and his people don't give a damn about progressives or about progressive pressure. And I think they also understand, probably correctly, that four years from now, progressives are once again going to be in the same situation where they're going to be forced to support a Democrat to stop a neo-fascist uh, candidate from the right. And so I, I, I hate to say it, but Biden's people are probably right to ignore progressives who got no concessions out of them, extracted nothing from them, and yet still supported. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, your you know your wet blanket is is rightly applied here. I think um, the only thing I would say about that is you know conditions on the ground are contingent and open in ways that we may not quite know yet. You know, um, this is we we still have you know we're the largest social movement in U.S. history happened over the summer, you know, I mean, and it, it was the explosion that happened after the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, you know, hit every corner of the United States as well as going global. And that's because there are deep structural contradictions right now. There are that get more intense all the time. There's been cycles of them emerging with greater ferocity since 2008, and they happen outside the Democratic Party. They happen outside the party system altogether, uh, but they they introduce new forms of instability. And you know, you imagine the conditions on the ground. You know, in just a couple of weeks, when um, the CDC's uh, eviction moratorium is up, uh, when there's you know when people are going to be uh, put out on the streets, you know, the states themselves have their own you know, kind of emergency measures here, but they're not going to last. They're not going to, you know, there's not going to be much there. There's going to be, you know, extraordinary um, uh, forms of dislocation that can go in any direction. This will be, this is fodder for fascists as much as it is for people on the left. And it depends on what people do with it, but there's going to be, there's a lot of instability and we are in the greatest economic downturn since the 1930s, you know, more generally, not just around uh, evictions, but around everything. So, you know, what happens on the ground, um, and how people respond to it in organized fashions are um, partly what, you know, normally I'm not really, I don't really care that much about presidential politics, or it's not really put where I ever put my political energy. Um, I, I, I write about it, I study it, but I think, you know, um, I, it's not, I have no uh, illusions about, um, you know, about Biden or Bidenism, but I do think that um, there are, there's forms of openness right now and forms of crisis that opened the possibility for um, broad efforts. Like, look, you know, on the um, here in Portland, last few days, there was an extraordinarily militant struggle around uh, an eviction, the Red House in Portland, and uh, it ended up, um, you know, it ended up being a um, a play of forces between the mortgage company and buyers and the mayor of the city. And militant Black Lives Matter activists on the streets, uh, taking the streets, holding the streets, building barricades, uh, and forcing the city, forcing the city back on itself on questions of of evictions and um, and uh, mortgage foreclosures, and that kind of turn, that kind of turn among activists, uh, you know, Portland in some ways has a certain kind of legacy of militancy which you don't see everywhere, but the kind of possibilities of you know kind of um, eviction politics, or we could name a number of things that, that go along, you know, along these lines, which, you know, which of course fall hardest and will fall, fall hardest on uh, communities of color. And, you know, these become 
potential bases for opening up the cleavages that we're going to need to to force crises from the outside that, you know, uh, not just presidential administrations, but other uh, institutions are going to have to respond to. And the thing is, if we don't do it, uh, these forms of um, uh, these forms of uh, dislocation and these forms of um, potential economic precarity and chaos will you know, be picked up on the other side. Absolutely. I want to talk about that on the other side of the break. Fascist organization, uh, the future, what the future may hold. And uh, you already mentioned Portland. I want to talk a little bit about Portland, that and a lot more with Joe Lowndes. Enjoy the music. Come back. We'll continue the conversation. back chatting with Joe Lowndes again. You should follow him on Twitter at Joe Lowndes. Lowndes is L-O-W-N-D-E-S. JoeLowndes.org is the website. Go there. Also the book I highly recommend. Uh, the most recent one, Producers, Parasites, Patriots, Race, and the New Right-Wing Politics of Precarity, co-authored with Daniel Martinez-Hosang. Get yourself a copy of that. All right, Joe, uh, I want to talk a little bit about fascist organization, and you kind of alluded to it there before the break, so let's just 
just really pick up there. We just saw in recent days one of the most, um, uh, I guess you could say, uh, viscerally, um, uh, I don't want to say shocking, it's not really the right word, but uh, uh, substantive organizational, you know, uh, um, expressions by a fascist street gang, the Proud Boys. I, I can't think of a parallel where uh, we have seen it in recent times. And so I guess the question is, what exactly is the growth of these fascist organizations like the Proud Boys in these last four years under Trump? What is the, um, how do I want to say this? How should we understand the growth of these fascist organizations? Is it simply a reaction to Trump or is there something deeper there? Yeah, I think, um, you know, these, these tendencies are always present in American society, fascist tendencies, proto-fascist tendencies, white supremacist tendencies. Uh, and they, you know, they've um, waxed and waned in different eras around different issues over different um, uh, critical moments that have emerged. I think I would say, if I was going to typify what's happened in terms of these organizations over the last four years, I, I would split it into kind of two kind of smaller eras. And I think the first one is the you know, the era of the alt-right that uh, emerged, you know, right, um, you know, during the 2016 election cycle and then into 2017. You had all these, you know, kind of like, internet fascist and, and um, white nationalists and eugenicists and other people who kind of moved from, um, you know, from internet chat rooms uh, onto the street. And this, you know, this is everybody from, you know, Stormfront to, uh, you know, Richard Spencer's, um, you know, uh, website to groups like Identity Europa to kind of like broader mix of, of, groups on the far right connected to white supremacy, the traditional workers party. And, um, you know, there's a number of other ones and they, you know, they be, they were around and, um, in 2016, and then they were celebrants of, of, of Trump's election. And then they were kind of emboldened after that. And I think they thought they saw their moment, um, to, you know, to bring it out of the streets. And uh, obviously, um, Unite the Right rally in, in August 2017 was kind of the the apex moment for them. Uh, you know, that that movement, if you had to kind of, I think to talk about in broad strokes was, was kind of an anti-system movement. It was kind of a revolutionary movement. It was not so much connected to Trump, uh, but the idea that Trump was had enabled the possibilities of a more kind of like exuberant white nationalism. So, you know, I was at this uh, meeting of the American Renaissance a couple weeks prior in Nashville, which, you know, had kind of like all the, you know, Nathan Damago and, and Richard Spencer and all these other kind of younger uh, white nationalists and fascists, along with kind of an older cohort um, of kind of like white racist leading paleo conservatives. And, you know, they, they, um, Peter Brimelow was one of the speakers there. He was, you know, he's the, um, the editor of the, the website VDARE, uh, a hard nativist racist. And I think they gave, I think he gave a speech where he, he, he said that Trump, they gave Trump a C minus, I think, on his presidency because they thought that he was not really one of them, that he had opened the door for them, but he wasn't really uh, an open white nationalist in the way that they were. But then, you know, um, Unite the Right happened 
And suddenly, after um, James Field kills Heather Heyer, uh, people are really kind of disgusted by it, right? There's like, there's kind of a, a broad national outpouring of, you know, I'd seen these guys in their, you know, khaki pants and polo shirts with their tiki torches and saying vile things and then out on the streets and then killing this anti-fascist activist. It had kind of, you know, it was not a good moment for them. They All those organizations started to fall apart, either through infighting or outside attack or lawsuits soon afterwards. And so, um, Identity Europa ends up having to change its name. Traditional Workers' Party kind of collapses. American Vanguard, which is the group that James Fields is part of, uh, also kind of, um, you know, kind of takes a dive. And, um, you know, Andrew Anglin from Stormfront was, you know, openly said this was not our moment. We we should not have been out on the streets. Even Steve Bannon was denouncing these groups. You know, Trump himself wasn't, but Bannon's calling them losers. And these are people we don't want any part of. And you know, so there was a, there was something there where it was kind of like an open white racism that just didn't take in a way. And partly because anti-racist rhetoric is deeply part of the United States these days, even though it's a white supremacist nation, there's a way in which, you know, the, 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 the myths and stories and narratives of the civil rights era have worked their way into the system in a way. So partly what happened, I think, after that was um, a more kind of system loyal group of activists uh, are kind of on the scene and they're more markedly um, not racist or not openly racist. So the Proud Boys are, you know, really continually saying that they're not racist. They're not racist. They, they, you know, that's their Western chauvinist, but that doesn't mean that people of color are not part of this organization or that people of color indeed are not leadership in that organization. And then you've got all these militia groups, right? The three percenters and, the Oath Keepers. And you know, if you go to the Three Percenters website, if you go to their about page, the first thing you'll see is in all caps, we are not white supremacists. We are not white nationalists. If you go to the Oath Keepers website, it says we are, uh, we come in all colors. They're, they really are vociferous about this kind of thing. If you look at, um, you know, some of the most notorious fascist street fighters in the U.S. right now in Portland, Patriot Prayer, uh, people like Joey Gibson, the leader of that group, you know, identifies as non-white. Uh, his number two, Tiny Toasis, uh, you know, from uh, uh, American Health Samoa. So there's a way in which that a certain kind of like anti-racist veneer and a loyalty to Trump um, both became kind of hallmarks of this kind of emergent proto-fascist scene. And I think actually it's much more devastating and much more um, dangerous than the alt-right because it, it actually has a, a broader... Uh, appeal in many ways, or can, you know, people can imagine themselves joining onto it because they see themselves as supporters of the president up until now, uh, or now they'll be in the president in exile. Yeah, go ahead. Well, and, and also there is an element of, and I, I wrote about this actually, not even in the context of Proud Boys, just in the context of sort of white identity politics, but what unites them, it's it's not uh, so much skin color exactly, but it is the, it is the idea that they are the oppressed minority. Mm-hmm. Right. They they are the ones who are being oppressed by the tyrannical totalitarian authoritarian liberals who really control the uh, the actual mechanisms of our society. So there is an element of sort of 
anti-establishment kind of politics that's embedded within the the, the broader sort of uh, quasi-fascist ideology. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you don't have those fascist movements without uh, resentment and grievance being right at the heart of them. That's absolutely, and and that and the grievance can be you know um, aimed outward in different directions. I think one of the things that does hold these groups together is um, if uh, uh, you know kind of. There are distinctions between different elements of these these movements, but certainly the incel movement and deep um, violent misogyny is is you know key to you know a lot of the the mass killings that have happened on the far right, more than half of them in the last decade have been incel killings, have been um, anti woman anti feminist killings, and there's kind of a glorified masculinity which is runs from that all the way through you know the Proud Boys. Uh, I, I think this kind of idea of um, the defense of the West. Uh, nativism is 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 really key to it as well, uh, and anti-immigrant politics. And, and defense of men. Go ahead. Defense of men, right? That of men's rights, right? That the white Christian male is the uh, endangered species, is the one in the crosshairs. So there isn't there there is that sort of also the kind of um, it's it's not only anti-establishment, but it's almost like a survivalist mentality. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and that's. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, this is a lot of the people who make up the ranks of uh, three percenters and Oath Keepers and other, um, you know, kind of uh, paramilitary groups are also veterans, right? These are people who are, um, have come back from these, from U.S. imperial wars and are displaced and confused and have a lot of different things going on. And that's partly what, you know, it becomes fodder for these kinds of um resentments and things to to grab onto which is you know it, 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 this is Captain Ballou talks about it in her book about um you know the rise of revolutionary white power in the 1980s as being a post-vietnam era kind of thing you see it again after world war one um and and other obviously after the civil war as well but um I, you know that's that's certainly it yeah, this idea of 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 um you know of grievance and of anger and uh you know now I mean, it's just, you know, it, it comes out in these, obviously through um, conspiracy theorizing through QAnon, right? And the idea that there's a deep state that's controlling all this stuff. But, you know, I, you know, if you go to a, uh, you know, an anti reopen America, reopen Oregon rally in, um, in Salem, Oregon, the capital last May. And it was really interesting because brought together were kind of like people who had been kind of hippie anti-vaxxers. Uh, people who seem like kind of middle class Christian evangelicals, uh, kind of small petty bourgeois small business owners, uh, and then you know all these proud boys kind of jacked up, ready for a fight, and then you know these these people armed with uh, with long guns, these you know these three percenters and others, all sharing this space together, opposing the idea of wearing masks, opposing the idea of shutdowns, and this became you know as you said this one of these other areas of of claiming that there's real oppression going on and that people they they're fighting for their lives either for the right to worship the right to open up their business a right to go to work a right to not have to you know be emasculated and wear a mask i mean there's all kinds of things which are you know uh caught up in that but you know that whole thing you know just followed exactly along the lines of this this kind of logic 
I have probably 17 more follow-ups on that, but we're going to run out of time. So I want to quickly ask you about, uh, well, the area that you live, because not all of us are privy to uh, the Pacific Northwest, the, uh, the, the beauty, the scenery, the nature, and also the politics. And Portland has really become a flashpoint in these last couple of years, and especially in the last uh, 18 months or so. Um, so I want to give you a chance to talk with us, especially those of us who don't know Portland, don't really know it other than, you know, from a political perspective. What is it about Portland that really made it a flashpoint? Is it, I mean, is it simply geography and sort of cultural dynamics? Uh, you know, those who have kind of moved into Portland for the uh, hipster counterculture sort of vibe versus those from the rural areas? Or is there something about the city? Is there a combination of factors? Help us to unravel why Portland took center stage in the way that it did? That's a great question. And there's so many parts to that answer. I, uh, first, I want to say I live down in Eugene, about two hours south. Um, uh, but I'm up there fairly regularly and and have a lot of uh, close comrades in, involved in politics there. But one thing about Portland, uh, taking the long history quickly, you know, it was um, it, as a territory, it 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 banned the um, residency of, uh, of free blacks or slaves. There were both Confederates and uh, pro-union elements in the uh, territorial legislature, but they all were united in uh, a belief in white supremacy and an idea of kind of white republicanism. And so that kind of set the stage for, um, you know, for this being a version of a white utopia out here. And so racial problems have been really deep and ingrained here and in ways that differ from the South, but uh, in some ways are no less profound uh, and has you know pervaded um, the culture here ever since. The thing about Portland is it's also a little bit unlike Seattle. It's, it's a working class port city, um, which had both kind of left wing and right wing elements uh, going all the way back to the beginning of the 20th century, uh, you know, kind of vitally on both sides. Um, you know, more recently, it has been a site of, of kind of left-wing political militancy. Um, going back before, the, the hipsters start to really arrive there, you know, around the turn of the 21st century, a little bit before that. But even going back, you know, George H.W. Bush referred to Portland as Little Beirut uh, back in 1990 when uh, referring to a reception that Dan Quayle got when he went there to, to fundraise for some uh, Oregon uh, Republican candidates. And he was, you know, um, assailed by by anarchists pretty pretty heavily and other other protesters. So it has a long kind of like history of of kind of left-wing kind of street radicalism. It also has a long history of anti-fascism. Uh, Rose City, uh, you know, uh, Antifa has been is one of the oldest, you know, groups in the US. But it, you know, it came to, you know, in the 1990s, this is where Tom Metzger, who just died, um, uh, was head of the White Aryan Resistance. He was a TV repairman from California. And, you know, he he sent skinheads, young skinheads to uh, to Portland, partly because of an idea that uh, he wanted to organize working class youths in areas where um, there was there was 10 percent or fewer people of color. And Portland was one of those cities. So we hope that you could really build a, you know, kind of a kind of, you know, um, what Kieran Frazier in a recent article called, you know, American Strasserism. Uh and so as a result, there was a strong, really robust anti-fascist movement, an anti-skinhead movement, which emerged in the 1990s and, and kind of radicalized a lot of young people and also built uh, organizational power as well as a, as a culture that really embraced um, 
militant uh, responses to uh, to them. And so, you know, this then became a side of fascist organizing with with Patriot Prayer around. Uh, there's a lot of right wing elements which which reemerged uh, when Trump was elected, and those two things, you know, they can they those two tendencies were right at odds with each other. And then Black Lives Matter, you know, there's been so many police killings of black people in Portland. This became a major issue. And a lot of uh, radical black activists and indigenous activists and Latinx activists came out in the forefront there to uh, to build a, a radical movement there and, and kind of join forces with anti-fascists who also had longstanding grievances with the police. And so that kind of laid the basis for uh, a lot of what we saw across the summer. And then it was dwindling a little bit until Trump sent in um, you know, federal marshals and border patrol and other people. And then you had, you know, numbers which blossomed up to the thousands again. And then liberals, all kinds of people were out in the streets, you know, getting tear gassed night after night in kind of an extraordinary way, actually, for, for a few weeks there. So I think, you know, that's that's part of it. Um, um, I think that it's, there are, um, there's a lot of organizational power. It's a lot like Minneapolis, Minnesota in those ways. You've got kind of like, Partly it's labor radicalism. Partly it's it's kind of like anti-racist, anti-fascist. A lot of it's anarchist activism. Um, there's a distinctly anarchist space. Trump wasn't wrong about that. Uh, so I think that that partly um, there's much more to it than that. But I would say those are some of the main kind of like you know features of that of that scene there. One of the things I always found interesting about it and watching it is that Portland and what was going on in Portland somehow seemed to embody this, uh, you know, this thing that a lot of uh, sociologists and political scientists talk about ad nauseum, the urban rural divide, right? That you had these fascists from outside of the city often to, as far now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think more often from the Eastern part of the state uh, who would kind of drive into the city looking for a fight and looking for leftists to fight basically. And that I guess what I'm wondering is that, yes, it's an urban rural divide. Yes, it's sort of regions of the state, but Oregon's not the only state that has that yet. Somehow Oregon was unique in that way. Yeah. And there's a couple things about that. I think one, you know, there are forces that were closer to home. You know, Joey Gibson, head of Patriot Prayer, was a you know house flipper from Vancouver, which is kind of a bedroom community of Portland across the river in Washington state. Uh, you know, occupying kind of a petty bourgeois and maybe slightly precarious position. And those were the first kind of struggles we saw. I think later you got the more rural urban divide. Partly that is connected to longer standing uh, political fights in the state over um, LGBT rights and, uh, you know, and other um, other divides that emerged as, as political cleavages in the state. But it also the urban rural stuff here is very um because of the extractivist nature of the Oregon economy, the old timber economy and grazing and mining economy, a lot of that stuff really um, took major hits in the 1980s and 90s, partly because of um, free trade agreements. You now have parts of the state, southern and eastern Oregon, that are really like a failed state. You've got no you know, uh, 911 service, no um, public libraries, you know, all, all kinds of things that you normally take for granted as parts of a functioning um, polity uh, with with forms of uh, you know state provision are just absolutely absent in a number of counties in in rural Oregon, and so you know, in meanwhile Portland is now a very wealthy city, and th- this the uh, the anger and resentment uh, that you have in these rural areas gets fed into the militia movement. Militias moved in uh, very capably and took over first responder. 
um, uh, roles in Southern Oregon, uh, would teach classes on small animal butchering or would pour cement for wheelchair ramps for veterans and do all kinds of things that actually made them civic actors in these spaces. Uh, right-wing zealots and nativists and dangerous folks, but really people who became part of the, the fabric politically of these spaces. And so part of that really shaped um, a certain, the, the, the real radical divides there. Um, and then the other thing I think is just like in the places where even that's not the case, social media and social media uh, conspiracies spread so quickly that you don't even need much organizational power. You know, we had these major wildfires here over the summer and, you know, just over a couple of Facebook posts, suddenly you've got people all over the state who think that, you know, uh, Antifa and Black Lives Matter are coming out to loot, have, have set these fires and we're coming out to loot the farmhouses of Eastern Oregon and people are setting up, you know, armed checkpoints all over the state. And it just happened like that, you know. Uh, I, I've talked to a lot of these militia folks here in Oregon, and um, they have really rich and elaborate fantasies about what's happening. And then particularly with, with everything that happened in Portland, people watching that from outside Portland from a conservative viewpoint, that just they would, the fantasies would get stoked of what actually is going on there and who these people are and who's funding them, which, which you know tie into you know, deeper and older kinds of conspiracies. I want to ask you about the future here, and I'm not asking necessarily for a prediction, but more for a structural analysis, because it does seem that as we began our conversation, Joe, that we're in this kind of interregnum, and certainly the monsters are rearing their ugly head, and uh, while the orange fascist monster may potentially be on his way out, at least out of the uh, White House, it seems that the sort of neoliberal consensus is coming right back in, and that's the other, you know, the other, the, the other Janus face on the coin here. And so I guess my question for you is that as the neoliberal regime, you know, which may never have really left, but has certainly reasserted itself here with Joe Biden, they seem to be 100% dead set on clinging to a sort of austerity uh, mindset and a, a pro-Wall Street, pro-finance agenda. I mean, Biden's people are already talking about austerity and cuts and fiscal responsibility and grand bargains and compromises with conservatives and all of that, literally in the midst of a pandemic. And so really, the question is, what is that going to cause here? It seems inevitable that it's going to lead to a further radicalization on both the left and the right, which of course is going to draw out those cleavages you were talking about, but also raise the stakes and raise the potential for very serious violence. So uh, what's your read on the coming years and what the Biden administration might do for all of us? Yeah, that's, you know, I, I think um, I think there's kind of a couple of positions on the left uh, around how to think about on the let's, let's start with, you know, the, the kind of the fascist right. Uh, you know, on the one side, you have left pundits and figures like Sam Moyne or Corey Robin, uh, well, that, that Trump really didn't really differ in any real way from conservative Republicans that went before him, and that he was, moreover, a weak and ineffective president who was sandbagged at every turn. Um, so, you know, from that perspective, we have, you know, what we have now is more of the same kind of dynamics we had throughout the, you know, the, the first decade of the 20th, 21st century. On the other, there's accounts of Trumpism as a kind of fascism, a political movement that has been busily, you know, dismantling uh, democratic institutions, smashing constitutional norms, shredding liberalism as we know it. And this is the perspective of liberal academics like Timothy Snyder and Jason Stanley and Jeffrey Isaacs and others. 
the problem with the the Moyne Sam Moyne Corey Robin perspective, I think, is that it it um they see kind of like they I think they falsely divide institutional power from what they see as merely performative dimensions of Trumpism, and what that misses is that you know that Trump really did transform the the GOP electorate uh, and the party itself into a fully far right party along the you know the kind of Central European variety as a formidable anti-democratic entity. And this has enormous ramifications for, for U.S. politics around race, gender, uh, national belonging, basic elements of public health. And this, you know, this will pull things radically rightward in, in really dangerous ways, I think. The, you know, the, the, the problem with the liberal version of this is that it, you know, it treats the U.S. Constitution as a sacred document that somehow enshrines democracy while ignoring the extraordinary race violence, class violence, and brutalities of empire on and on that gave us Trumpism to begin with. So, um, you know, what we're left with on the one hand, as you said, is a certain kind of attempt to return to neoliberalism, which I think may not, we may find ourselves soon in a post-neoliberal era. You know, partly what neoliberalism requires austerity, but it also requires a series of promises. And we may not be, this this, um, impasse or conjuncture, maybe, is another word to use. Uh, maybe one where neoliberalism itself has kind of run out of gas, you know, like what, that there may be calls for different kinds of social provision, different kinds of redistribution, different kinds of political power, different kinds of um, assertions, which, you know, could give us, you know, as you say, forms of radicalism on the left. We've already had it. We, and hopefully we'll continue to, to get it. Um, but, you know, it also will, you uh, you know, emerge or continue to emerge on the right. You've got, you know, 70 million people who believe that Trump was not, you know, was, was wrongly uh, ousted from his rightful place in the white house. And, you know, that's, those are armed movements and those are deeply held movements and that stuff is, um, you know, incredibly dangerous. So I think we are, you know, we're in a moment where um, I don't think it's, it's really to answer your question. I'm not sure what Bidenism will do because I don't see, you know, Biden is kind of, you know, um, set up, calls himself a trans, a transitory figure. Uh, and yet really what he's done is, as you've kind of noted, he's, he's, he's put all of these old Obama people back into the cabinet and, and then adding to the people like Buttigieg today as transportation secretary. And so, but you know, the thing is like, they, they imagine what they that they can handle what they have in front of them and they may just fail spectacularly and they're going to be hemmed in they're going to be hemmed in not just by the senate not just by this even more radicalized supreme court but by state legislatures who now have the power because this was 2020 of re uh redrawing uh district lines in the states which was going to give the it was going to give republicans more power in the house as well as in state legislatures. So, of course, you know. <laughs> of course. I mean, come on. Well, look at what they look at what they did to a much more capable politician in 2010. Obama is light years ahead of anything Biden could ever hope to accomplish or be. And Obama was absolutely brutalized by the Tea Party in 2010, completely stripped of any uh, leverage, political leverage that he had, and really had to uh, play out his terms in that way. And Obama. Obama is a much more deft political operator than Biden. I expect uh, failing spectacularly to be an understatement. (laughs) I'm afraid you're probably right. Um, So final question for you. um, And this is, I guess, really about um, 
also about the future, but but it also really, I think, tells us something about the past because we have heard so much, uh, and we've even talked a little bit about it here in our conversation. We've heard so much about populism, about this idea of populism and what populism has meant historically and what populism means now and what populism may mean in the future. And I'm not sure I even know what it means. And I'm not sure there's even agreement on what it means. But I know that you've talked about this uh, at length and written about it. So can you help us to understand what populism means now and potentially in the future in a post-pandemic world? Because I do think there is some level of consciousness being raised by the pandemic, which has really drawn the curtain back and laid bare just how uh, inept and rotten the imperial state has become. And as you said just a minute ago, Joe, neoliberalism requires a certain set of promises. And I think the pandemic has revealed that the United States can't keep those promises, not to its citizens, not to people around the world. And so the question is, what does the future hold. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, so populism has a really mixed uh, history, both in the United States and, and uh, internationally. If you had to boil down to some kind of definition, it would be to say that it's, it's a notion of the people, a notion of popular sovereignty uh, and self-rule, collective self-rule. That's what kind of, you know, gives populists their energy and vision, as well as an idea that there are always outsiders who seek to stand in the way of, of, you know, of collective self-realization. So right-wing populists have uh, always considered the idea of, of the people as, um, as producers, the virtuous producers of society. In the United States, it's been it was the Jacksonians in the uh, Jacksonian coalition in the 18, you know, 1820s and 1830s, or, you know, the, the People's Party in the 1890s, which was, you know, farmers, uh, largely, but the idea that people who made things, people who produce things, versus uh, the the you know the idle wealthy or the the parasites, um, you know there were there were kind of left wing articulations of that. A lot of the the populist movement was uh, was quite visionary. Often it was socialist, and it was you know it was aimed at uh, really disrupting the system as it as it stood. Um, Versions of it, you know, but even at the time, 1890s, you know, there were kind of racist versions of it. Uh, the idea of popular sovereignty in the United States has always gone. Collective self-rule has made, made possible through what Du Bois called democratic despotism. The idea of, of indigenous land and demeaned black and Chinese labor. Uh, it's been it's been gendered, you know, uh, that this is a certain certain kind of like masculine virtue to to being a producer. So there's ver- there's a version of it which is right wing, uh, which I think is uh, nativist. It's um, uh, it's deeply nationalist and isolationist, and often you know has kind of in the background anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Left wing populism, the you know, um, right wing populism sees threats from above and below. Let's say also, uh, you know that. You don't just have elites and parasites at the top. You have welfare cheats and criminals below you, right? And this was kind of like the George Wallace, Richard Nixon, Pat Buchanan version, kind of Donald Trump version of populism. Left-wing populism has always been a vision of, of uh, an inclusive, capacious, open notion of the people and an idea of the elites or the people who stand in your way are economic elites and political elites at the top. And so, you know, it's also, left-wing populism is also... Um, 
you know, it's it's uh, disruptive. It tears away at, at norms. It it pushes in democratic directions that 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 cause a lot of upheaval. And so I think you know there are um, there are people who call for left wing populism. Let's say people, let's say Jacobin Magazine here, will you know are kind of like see themselves as economic populists. But the thing is about if you want a left wing populism in the United States, you have to confront white supremacy right right away, and you have to confront heteropatriarchy right away. Those are the things that stand in the way of the possibility of a truly open and capacious movement that really, instead of divides a parasite from the producer, acknowledges our interdependence and acknowledges us all as, as parasites in a way. And I think that, you know, a disruptive populist movement from below, which, which attacks the system itself, which attacks the parties, which attacks the, 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 particularly the institutions that hold it together, the police, prisons, is, you know, is one version is you know one version of a populism that um, could be liberatory, emancipatory, and opens up you know new space. So you could think of, for instance, you know Trump goes to Minnesota during the the election campaign and and speaks to white working class people there about all these Somali immigrants who overrun them. And if Democrats get their way, it's going to be more of the same. It's kind of racist garbage. But then you know you look on the ground, the people actually were leading the labor struggles in Minneapolis and in Minnesota more broadly at the time are the same Somalis. They're the ones fighting uh, for better wages and bathroom breaks at these Amazon distribution centers in Shakopee. They're the ones on chicken and turkey farms, uh, processing farms uh, that are, are pushing back against uh, labor exploitation. There are, you know, there's forms of the possibility of resistance, which actually, you know, dr- draw on our best traditions of, you know, Black radicalism, of uh, immigrant radicalism, of you know, of, of black feminism. These, I think, are you know, I think a multicultural populism of the left, I think, has a vision and a set of possibilities um, to you know to push back against the system as such. But we can't get there through um, an idea, an old idea of an American class thing that um, wants to avoid the idea of identity. I think we have to we have to take on the very things that that. Um, made populism problematic. I think you kind of, you asked me what time it was and I, I told you how to make a watch. I'm say I probably went on too long with that answer, but that's my broad sense of, of how populism functions. Well, that's what I was hoping for. And that's why I had Joe Lowndes on the program to get into the nitty gritty of all of these issues. Joe is a wealth of knowledge. I recommend you follow him on Twitter at Joe Lowndes. JoeLowndes.org is the website. Again, the most recent book, Producers, Parasites, Patriots, Race and the New Right-Wing Politics of Precarity. Uh, Joe Lowndes, political science professor at the University of Oregon. Joe, thanks for coming on Counterpunch. Oh, Thanks so much for having me, Eric. It's been great. Listeners, thank you as always for the continued support. Go to Counterpunch Plus, become a subscriber, and we will chat again next week.